0: Today we're going to continue on in our series on Ephesians chapter two. We're starting in Ephesians chapter two. So if you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter two, we're dealing with uh, Ephesians and we're talking about heaven on earth. And last uh, last few weeks, um, we've discussed uh, the the wonderful blessings that God provided for us through Jesus Christ, and um, they. Have, enunciated in in uh, chapter one and we went through chapter one and had a look at the wonderful things that God has provided for us and those blessings are not just he says in verse three he has given us every spiritual blessing in in heavenly places and, I, and we wanted to actually stress the fact that A spiritual blessing which is in a heavenly place is not something that is ethereal or out of this world and it's sort of like a mystical thing out there. It can be something that is very relevant and something that is very practical and something that actually exists for us today and helps us in our today's life. And so we went through just a couple of those um, blessings that are listed there in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and we talked about the practical application of those in our lives. None of the things that Jesus has done for us are um, there waiting for us when we die. They are all here and now. They're part of eternal life. And eternal life is what we enter into before we actually get there. We enter into eternal life now when we believe in Jesus Christ. The Bible says in John it says this is eternal life that they may believe in you. And actually believing in Jesus we begin our eternal life now. And so the blessings that he, he has provided for us in Christ are very much a reality for us right here and now. And they provide incredible strength and focus and, and um, determination for us in this life now. Not just in the one to come. It's not like we're waiting for it all to happen when we die. It's right here and now that they have application in our lives. And today I want to talk to you, uh, we're going to look at uh, chapter 2 verses uh, 1 to 10 and we're going to I want to talk about seated together at last seated together at last um, now you won 't really understand what that means, but as we 're going through the sermon, I want you to just to keep that in mind that the sermon today is seated together at last, and so we want to talk about that so i 'm going to just do a bit of a what they call expository preaching on the the verses as we're going through. So what we'll do is we'll read the verses that we're going to talk about and then, I'll, then I'm going to talk to you and tell you a bit of a story from the Old Testament to help you understand some of the ideas that are being portrayed in this passage of Scripture. Everything that we're reading tonight is full and packed. It's, it, there's so much in it. But I, it will help you understand where you are, from where you've come from and to where you are going. And that's the important thing that we want to, to pay attention to. So here we are at verse one and chapter two. it says, "And you he made alive, now, where you see italics in your Bible like he made alive it what it 's saying to you when you it 's saying those words are not really in the in the in the passage of scripture at this point, that only added in there to give some sense. Those words come in verse five, which says, "He made alive." But in some of your translations, it says, "But you who were dead in your trespasses and sins." So he's taken that "were made alive" and he's put it at the front so he can help you understand where he's going with that. So some of you will not find those words in your in your if you're reading in your Bible, they won't be there. He made alive, but they will be there coming later. But this is the New King James Version, and they've put them there just to make sense. And it says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, the word dead is an interesting, everything that's in red I'm going to talk about, okay? The word dead is an interesting word because it means that it's absence of life. It means there is absolutely no life there. So it, it's the word necros, which is in the, for dead. It means dead. And so when... the you are talking about your life prior to coming to Christ, God views it as being spiritually dead. Now, a world doesn't understand what that is about. We kind of think that a person who's spiritual life is somebody who has some sort of idea or some sort of belief in some sort of mystical spiritual thing, you know? And so when I'm talking to some people who don't believe in Jesus but have a belief in something else, they consider themselves to be spiritually alive. They consider themselves to be a spiritual life in the field that they are dabbling in, whether it's horoscopes or whether it's or something else or Buddhism. They believe they are spiritually alive, searching for something. But the Bible has a different idea about that. It doesn't consider them to be spiritual life. Without Christ, you are dead. You may be searching for something. You may be looking for For something greater than the material life in which you're in but you are spiritually dead until you find Jesus until Jesus comes into your life you are dead there's absolutely no way you can actually save yourself if you are dead you can't save yourself out of that state of deadness it's completely impossible for you to do that you need to have someone who to raise you up if I were to say Ruth You'd be dead and lay on the floor and she was able to feign a good deadness. You could, you could jump around her and jump up and down around her and say, you know, and she would not move. She'd like a dead person. You know, but you could tell whether she was dead the minute you started getting into her feet with a little pocket knife and started to poke a foot with a poke. She'd probably go, ouch, ouch, and you know she really wasn't dead. She was just feigning it. She was just pretending to be dead. Now, when you're dead with this word, you're really dead. You can't, you can't respond to anything. It's not like you think, oh, my life is not really good. I think that I might uh, try and get myself out of this state and get myself toward God. It's impossible. You can't do it. You can't save yourself. You can't ask God to save you. You have to be called by God and God has to work on you with his Holy Spirit. He has to do some work. and You can't do anything about this state of deadness. That's the word that's being used, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now the word trespasses is an interesting word because it means to slip or fall to the side. It means that if you're heading somewhere and all of a sudden all of a slippery path and down you went. You slipped. You were meant to be walking a straight path and all of a sudden you slipped and fell to the side. Yesterday I was working in the, in the rain, I, I, it was fatigue. you've got to dig a hole, it's a good day to dig a hole when it's raining, I mean the ground is soft and although you're getting wet it's, it's a good time because you can stick that spade right in the ground and, and, and it comes out, it's good, I mean it's not hard, so it's good to dig in the rain, but the problem with digging in the rain if you're digging on a hill is the ground is wet. And if you produce mud, you know, the next thing you know, it's on slippery ground you stand and you will slip. This is the word, to slip, to slip, trespasses, to slip. You, what, you grew up and you thought, well, I, I have this goal in my life. I want to be good. I really want to be good. I really do. And then all of a sudden, you slipped. You slipped, you fell, you did something that you should do, you didn't want to do, you displeased yourself, you thought, boy, my conscience is not giving me a happy time about this. I slipped, I made a big mistake here. And as you go along in life, these trespasses sort of build up because you continuously slip, you continuously fall, and you get to a state where you are completely locked in, in your dead state, unable to pick yourself up. The word sins is the word hamateo in the Greek and it means to miss the mark. That's one of the meanings of the word. So if I was going to, you know, there's an F over there. See the F on the board at the back there? Now if I was to take this mic, which is still turned on, so I'll turn it off so it doesn't make a noise when it falls. And I'm to to take this and I'm I'm going to throw this mic at that F to get a... And I throw it like that and if I throw it and it misses the F... It hits the wall. I think, I got the wall. No, but you missed the F. It's missing the mark. Life is like that. It's like what happens is we have an ideal or there's a goal or there's a standard on which we should be aiming for, and guess what? We invariably miss the mark. You know, we were meant to be good. We were meant to be perfect. We invariably break some of the commands of God if we told a lie we broke a command of God the idea is not to ever tell a lie to speak truth all the time if we looked at somebody and we had some sort of um, immoral thought in our hearts uh, an immoral thought was maybe we shouldn't have had that thought but we had it in our minds and we and and it we missed the mark of purity. All of those things tell us that we've missed the mark. He says, you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and your sins. So he shows us the state that we live in before we had Christ. And then he tells us exactly what was going on behind the things. He said, in which you once walked, the word walked means to have your course of life. That means to the way you lived. You walked according to the course of this world Now the the word world is an interesting word because it's the word cosmos and it means order and arrangement. You walked according to the order and the arrangement of society, the society in which you lived. Now, there are many societies in in, in this life. There is a society of the Western person who lives in Australia. There's a society, an African society. There's a a, a South African society which is different to the African society. There's an Indonesian-Dutch society. There's lots of different kinds of societies out there. Um, And each society has its certain order and arrangement. There are certain ways that they do things, you know. And we in life have lived our lives according to the order and the arrangement of the societies of this world, which are governed by, the Bible says, the prince of the power of the air, which is reference to the demonic world, which is setting it all up. You see, it doesn't matter which culture you come from, unless you have the culture of heaven within you and controlling you, you are stuck in a culture that's heading downward, not upward. Every culture has its good points and every culture has its bad points. And all cultures, if they are the end in themselves, become a culture that leads us away from God, not toward God. So the cultures of this world, the order and arrangement of this world, are all the thoughts and all the arguments and all the ideas and all the imaginations and all the precepts that are set up by man who has not got a clue with regard to God. All of those things become this mass of ideas and thoughts that we are controlled by every day. The more TV you watch, the more they control your brain. The more they control your brain, the more they control what you do with your life. The more you let somebody into your head and talk to you and control the way you think, the more your life is not your own to live, it's lived out. Somebody else's ideas are lived out through you. This whole world with advertising is all about controlling your belief systems, controlling your mind, controlling what you're thinking about, controlling how you buy things. The news is not about truth and it's not about facts. The news is about controlling you. It's about how do you think about what's going on in the world today. And they're all trying to manipulate the way you think, the way you think about things. Now... If you are controlled by the prince of the air, the word air is is an interesting word because the word prince means to hold by force and the air word air is the atmosphere. We're not talking about a spiritual being who's in the atmosphere, although they are, I believe, in the atmosphere, but we're talking about those who create the atmosphere around you, the society around you is created. I don't know if you've ever gone down to the Gold Coast on a Friday night. Have you ever gone down to the Gold Coast on a Friday night? It's a busy place. It's a busy place because there's a a busy atmosphere going on there. It's a party place. It's a party atmosphere. Everybody who's going down there will find themselves excited in the flesh because that's what's going on there. It's all about the flesh and it's all about getting down and having a party. I don't know whether you've gone to town, gone into town on a Friday night and been there on a Thursday or Friday night when there's party time going down or South Bank when there's... happening at South Bank and you get down and everybody's getting down. It's party time. You can feel the atmosphere. The atmosphere is let go, let go, let's have fun, let's do it. That's the atmosphere. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the spirit that is in control of the atmosphere that is controlling what's happening in our lives. We were all puppets. We were all drones. We were all controlled by this guy, this, uh, this prince of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, those who've decided to be obstinate, those who've decided to hear what the truth is but have decided to put that truth out and to live according to what they want to live according to. It says in Romans, he says, All day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people or an obstinate and disobedient people people who don't want to hear and people who don't want to obey god stretches his hands out to people who are obstinate people who are disobedient it's like it's not like we don't know the right and wrong thing to do because we all have got a conscious we all created in the image of god and within us each one of us has a sense of a gauge that says now this is wrong what i'm doing here right now it's just really wrong Oh, this is right what I'm doing here now. We've got this gauge on the inside. So God's voice on the inside lets us know where we should be doing and what we should be doing. And he lets us know, but we are willful. We decide, verse 3 says, among those who once we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of their flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we're by nature children of... We decide that our flesh... My body, its drivers, its feelings inside, that's what I'm going to listen to. The desires i got on the inside, that's what I'm going to listen to. You know, if I'm hungry, I'm going to eat. And if I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat until I've finished eating. Not until you think I should stop, until I feel like I should stop. I'm going to have fun, I'm going to have fun until I've finished having fun. Until my flesh is completely satisfied. And if I'm going to have fun and it's further than what you're going to have fun, well that's your problem, not my problem, because my flesh is not finished yet it's telling me have some more and I'm going to give it some more that's what's going on here the society the world all governed by some demonic principality and we are getting sucked into it and we were heading in our road down towards hell we were looking straight up at God and God was saying I'm really unhappy about what's going on in your life we were dead in that state completely dead uh, you couldn't come to God and you couldn't say to God, well, you know, God, let's let's put my life on the mat here. You know, I want to put Hitler and some genocide freak on that side there, you know, some passive murderer or something on that side, and I'm going to put myself here. Well, God, you know, you know what, put the scales up. Weigh me now, God. I'm not as bad as them, eh? So if I that, yeah, you got to send to hell because that's really bad, wicked and villainous, it needs to be severely blamed and punished. But you know I me, mean? I've not murdered anybody. I might have thought bad thoughts about somebody, but I've not really committed really any. I mean, I didn't really hurt anybody in the stuff that I'm doing. But God doesn't weigh it like that. God doesn't look at it like that and say, well, you're not as bad as him. You know, there's there's three weights there and only one weight here. You know, so, I mean, you know, he doesn't have a place which is sort of, people get, you're either in or out with regard to heaven. And on one side he puts humanity, on the other side he puts perfection. And then he looks at you according to perfection. And guess what? If you're imperfect, he's angry. Well. You say, well, nobody's going to go up. That's exactly right. No one's, no one's good enough to get to God. If you think you're going to get there somehow by working your little tricks, by doing the right things, and you've got a little in your pocket, in the back of your mind you've got a little pocketbook that's got a 10 good things I did and 5 bad things I did, and you think that when you get to heaven you're going to make an argument of, I'm not as bad as others, you know. Look at the good things I've done, and it's going to sort of weigh out for me. It won't weigh out where you want it to weigh out because he doesn't look at it like that. He put Jesus on one side, perfect human on one side. He puts you on the other side. If there's any flaw, if there's any flaw, if there's just one flaw, you've got to lose it. You've got to go. You can't stay there. Nothing you can do can help you in this state. You're dead in your transgressions and sins. You're in a terrible state. It's horrible to think about what will happen if you don't get it fixed up, terrible. He says, You're under control. The devil's looking out for you and he's controlling you. And he says, and You're by nature a child of wrath, just as the others. And I love this verse, but God. Isn't that a wonderful two words, but God? How wonderful is that? But God, I mean, the, the picture looks pretty grim. It looks pretty horrible. It looks terrible. It looks like it's going to all fall over. But God, God, God steps in. I, I, when I was thinking about this, I don't know if you remember. And along came John. Can you uh, can you remember that song? In the old days, you know, and they, oh, he's grabbed her, he's grabbed her and he's tied her up and he's tied her up and he's put her on the railway tracks and he's put her on the railway tracks. Then along comes John. Just in the hour when you need him, John comes along and he picks up the little maiden that's been tied on the railway tracks and he carries away and saves her just in time before the train rumbles by. And then along came John. But, John, I thought about that and it's like that, you know, we are stuck in the mud. And we can't get out of the mud. And the water is rising. Every breath that we take, it gets higher and higher and higher. And then along comes God. God comes when he, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. He comes and he lifts us out. Thank you, Jesus. He says, who is rich in mercy because of his great love where he, with, he loved us. You know, you can't... You can't change God's attitude towards you. You might not understand it, but you really can't change it. If you want to think about this, you know, there's, a, there's a thing in the Philippine culture which says utangna la'ob. Now utangna la'ob is a debt of self. To give a debt of self, to understand that, you've got to understand that they uh, put themselves in a situation where if you do a favor for somebody, you, need, you are indebted to that person you need to pay that back. There's a debt of self. So it's very unlikely that somebody in the Filipino will, will put themselves into a situation where they're indebted because you can't really ever pay it back. So say, for instance, you gave me $100. I needed it really badly and I came to you and I said, Wendell, I need $100. Can you help me with $100? He says, you know, Mark, you know, I'll give you $100. So, yeah, I say, okay, thank you. And I give you back $100. You know what? I'm still not free because when he gave me $100, I can't repay him for his attitude toward me. I can give him the $100 back, but I can't say to him, can I pay you back for loving me and caring for me and being kind for me? Because I can't ever repay that back. Here we have God. God, with His great mercy and His great love, has an attitude. Was we didn't earn it, we couldn't. We could, but He's got it there. It's in His personality because God is love, and He just loves us. He loves us with an incredible love. It's called His great love. His great love by which He loved us. But God, because of His great mercy and His kindness toward us, and because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins even when we were lost even when we couldn't help ourselves he made us alive together with Christ by his grace you were saved and he raised us up together with Christ and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding richness of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus even when we were dead, he had this amazing love toward us that he would extend to us. Not because we did good things, but because of his great love, he would extend himself toward us. Now, I want to talk to you about being seated together with Jesus. And how it is and why it is that Jesus would have an attitude Toward us, why God would have an attitude toward us to lift us and to raise us up. To do that I want to take your attention and, I, and I'm going to flick through the next couple of verses there because we can talk about them later. But I'm going to take you to a situation on a hill in the in the Middle East, back in the Old Testament. There's two young men, and they'd probably be in their late teens, early twenties, I'd say. One man's called Jonathan, he's the son of King Saul. And the other one is called David. We call him a prince because he's been anointed by God to be the next king. You would have thought Jonathan would have been the next king because King Saul's son, Jonathan, was in line for the kingship. Now, David had had a a bit of a, a blessing in that he had killed a huge giant and he'd got a lot of following and... They sang songs about David saying, you know, David has killed his 10,000 and Saul has killed his 1,000, you know. Of course, Saul didn't have a good attitude towards David and we're told that Saul was troubled in spirit and when David was called to Saul, he was called to play at Saul's table, like to play the guitar and sing because David was a musician. So he would come and he would sing to Saul and Saul would settle down. He wouldn't be so cranky when David was there singing to him. But seeing David must have been a real vexation to Saul because he hated him, he wanted to kill him because David was more successful, David was more loved, David was more popular than Saul was. So Jonathan saw that, Jonathan and David were mates, they were really good mates, they were, bu- they were bosom buddies, they, were, they had connected together in such a way that they loved each other like they were stronger than the love of a woman it says in the scripture, they, they were good mates. And David said to Jonathan one day, he said, you know, your dad's going to kill me. I'm only one step away from being dead. He's going to run me through with a javelin. Oh, he'd thrown the javelin a couple of times at him. So he knew he was walking close to death. And Jonathan says, oh, no, this is, no, this is not a good thing, David. You know, we, we're not really happy about that. I'll tell you what, I'll go and suss dad out and find out whether you're fa- it's, he's favorable towards you or whether he wants to kill you. Don't come back in the house, but I'll let you know from a distance. I'll shoot some arrows far out there if it's bad and uh, I'll tell my servant to run further and collect the arrows to tell you to keep on going. He says, I'll protect you. I won't let it happen to you. So they were committed to each other. Jonathan and David were mates. They loved each other. They cared about each other and they were good mates. So they're meeting together now and at the point of this meeting, Jonathan and David swear loyalty to each other. Jonathan knew that David was the next king. He wasn't looking to be king himself. He knew that David was the next one coming up. He knew that God's blessing was on David. He knew that. Jonathan knew that. He understood that completely. And he wasn't worried about that. He wasn't hating David. He loved David. He was quite happy for David to have the kingship and him to be alive and be second to David. He was quite happy about that. And so they made this little agreement, this little pact. And I want to read it with you. He says, Then Jonathan said to David, By the Lord the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. May the Lord be with you. As he has been with my father. And then he makes these words. He says, But show me unfailing kindness, David, like that of the Lord, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. So he's saying, David, don't turn against me. You stay my friend. You show me unfailing kindness. And the next verse he says, And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. He's saying to him, David, look. We're single men now. I want you to be kind toward me so I'm not killed. David, and be kind to my family. I don't know what's going to happen. They weren't even married at that point in time. They were mates. Be kind to my family. Be kind to my family, David. Swear to me. Swear to me. When God cuts off all your enemies, David, when God has placed you where you're going to be, David, where God has seated you where you're meant to be, David, swear to me that you'll be kind to my family. Well, you've got to remember that when a king was disposed in those days, everybody that was under the king was killed. So that if David took kingship, I mean, his responsibility was that he would go and he'd kill all of Saul's children. So that was nobody would come back and have a god him. So Jonathan knew he could see that David was the next king and he said, Swear to me. With a vow to me that you'll be kind to me so I won't be killed and that you'll be kind to my offspring, even though there are none of them here yet. And so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan David reaffirmed his oath out of his love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. So they made this pact and an agreement. David says, I won't touch you and I won't touch your children. I give you my word before God. We have an agreement. Well, we know what happens. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, we have a situation that goes on. There's news now. Saul has been killed and Jonathan has been killed along with him. So now Jonathan is dead and Saul is dead. This is sometime on. Jonathan has had been married and Jonathan has a son. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. Now, why did his nurse take up a five-year-old and flee? Why did she do that? She knew as soon as Jonathan and Saul were dead, that David's men would come looking for all of Saul's offspring and they would put them to the sword. She grabbed that little boy who was walking around five years old and she started to run with him and I don't know what happened, but somehow he fell and when he fell, he broke his back and his legs were lame. His feet couldn't walk anymore. Little five year old. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and he became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. That was his name. I want you to put yourself in Mephibosheth's. Uh, he's five. A lot of pain now. He can't walk. What's his life like? Where's he living? What would it be like for him over the years The case he grows up to be a I man? He's hiding, mate. He's a, he's a fugitive. He's hiding out. He's looking out for everything that's moving. He's hiding somewhere and he doesn't want to be found. He doesn't want to be known. He's keeping very low profile because he knows his head will be on the table If he's found, he's scared, he's scared, he thinks that David is going to come and get him and kill him. He has no idea of the arrangement that was made between the father and David. He has no ideas about what had gone on between David and Jonathan. He has no idea that the closeness and the love they had for each other, all he knew was he was going to get killed and slaughtered if he was ever caught, if they ever caught up with him. So he went into hiding and his whole life would have been driven by bitterness and resentment and fear and anger and frustration. As he was hiding out, he couldn't use his legs. He was running in fear because he was scared, so scared of David who was going to come and kill him. When we go to 2 Samuel chapter 9, we read about David. He remembers remembers his love for Jonathan and he says these things. Now David, is there anyone still who is left of the house of Saul that I might show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He thinks, I don't know, did Jonathan have any kids? I mean, is there anybody left that I should know about that I can show kindness to? You know, here we have Mephibosheth thinking that David's looking out for him to kill him. And here we have David looking out for him to save him. Mephibosheth's hiding away. So he's put the word out there. Is there anybody out there who knows anybody that's the remaining from Jonathan's household? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And so when he had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, Yeah, at your service. And then the king said, Is there anyone still, someone of the house of Saul, to whom I can show the kindness of God? This is an amazing attitude that David has towards the previous king. Remember that David has the heart after God. So we'd expect to see the graciousness of God in his life. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. Now I want to just pause there for a second and talk to you about the way the Old Testament is written. and Some of the mysteries that are in the Old Testament. All the Old Testament names have meanings. And those meanings usually have a a secondary idea that are coming through. So Jonathan means Jehovah or the gift of Jehovah. That's what the word means. The gift of Jehovah. Jonathan means the gift of Jehovah. Uh, Rene means reborn. It's French, but it means reborn. Michelle is in the image of God. Uh, Micah, uh, we're told that... um, that Mephibosheth has a son and he calls him Micah in the image of God or like God. Jonathan is like a gift of God to David. David's name means love, ardent love. David is ardent love and Jonathan is a gift of God to David. They have a connection together. There's a a, bound, a bond between God's love and God's gift. It's all wrapped up together and they have a close connection. And So he's looking and Ziba means a statue, so I couldn't work out what that was about. So he's just there, standing there, a servant to everybody. But he's telling them about Jonathan's son. And it says that Jonathan's son has lame feet. The word lame is the word afflicted. It's afflicted, it's broken. It's afflicted and contrite the same word that is used when god says i my dwelling is with those who are contrite of heart go, go to isaiah chapter 66 turn in your bible i don't have the slide here go on isaiah 66 somewhere just after the psalms you read these words in isaiah 66 And God says in this word, "Thus says the Lord: Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my my rest? For all those things, my hands have made." He's saying God, God is saying to you, you know, you can't build something big enough to host me. I made the whole universe. He says, "Where's the house that you're going to build for me?" He's going to tell us something profound here. Where does God live? Where does God dwell? Where does God rest? Where does he place his rest? I mean, if he made everything, if he made the universe, what sort of a place could you build for him to come and live in? He tells us here, he says, For all those things my hands have made, and all those things exist, says the Lord, but now this one will I look. But on this one will I look. On him who is poor... And of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. You know, God is present with somebody, and that word poor and of a contrite spirit is the same word lame, which is used for his lame feet. That's where God lives, He lives with the brokenhearted. He lives with the people who are broken down. You think, oh, I'm pretty good. Well, you know, if you're thinking you're pretty good and you can hold your stuff and you can argue the point with everybody else, you're obviously not in a place where God wants to live with you because God lives with those people who know that they are busted. They're broken. There's a commonality in their lives. You know, I'm stuffed. I'm really broken. I'm really busted up about that, you know, and God loves that contriteness because he's there to help you in your brokenness. He's there to lift you out of your brokenness. He there to help heal you when you are hurting and sick. God dwells with those who are broken and those who are destitute. He lives with those who are... He is so present with those poor that he can tell you on judgment day what you've done to the poor who've come by your place. He says when you don't give them something to drink, he can tell you because you didn't do it as unto me because I was present in the poor person who came to you. That's where he he dwells, that's where he lives. He's present with those people who are broken and destitute. Not with the high mighty, those who are proud and full of themselves. He's there with those who have lame feet. So we know that God didn't forget Mephibosheth. That's why David's heart is stirred up to find out, is there anybody left? Because God never forgot about Mephibosheth. Even though Mephibosheth didn't know that God hadn't forgot about him. He was there in God's mind because that's where God lives. And so the king said to where is he? That's a telling question. Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Mecca. Maka. Makir, we'll call it Mecca. The house of Emil in Lodabar. Now I sat and I thought, I wonder what that means. I wonder what that series of words means. or Why would God put them there? So I, I looked them up. And I put the meanings of those words there because he lives in Mecca. he's the son of Emile and he's in Lodabar. And I, and I got the meanings here and I, I want to just help you about this. Now, we know that we were dead in our transgressions and sins without Jesus, we know that. I want to I just raise this thing a little bit. Some of us, even though we have been raised with him, even though we are a king's son, Still live like we are not. We live somewhere else other than in the king's palace. Mephibosheth was the king's son. He was a prince. You can't take that away from him. He was the prince. He was Jonathan's son. Jonathan was the prince. He was the prince's son. He was of royal blood. Mephibosheth is royal blood. If you want to take it up, he's a Christian. He's of the Christian breed. But where is he living? He's got lame feet. He's afflicted. His feet are not shod with the preparation of the gospel of feet. He's he's afflicted and he lives in a place called Mecca. And the word for Mecca is sold. Somehow he is sold into slavery. He's locked in there. He can't get out of there. He's sold in there. He lives in a house or a place called Amelia, my kinsman is God. We know that God is involved in that whole thing because he's living in a place where they're saying, my kinsman is God. But he's been sold into this place. He's locked down there. He's got fear all over him and the fear is holding him tight. He's sold into it. He's locked into it. It's in his mind. He can't get out of it. He can't get up. He can't walk. He can't do nothing because the fear has halted him and he's locked in. He's in Lodabar. The word Lodabar is without pasture. What is pasture for a sheep? Pasture for a sheep is nutriment. It's, it's food. It's nourishment. It's safe. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me beside green pastures. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he shall not, he's there to pick me up and to comfort me and to, to lead me on. He prepares the table in the presence of my enemies. That's the believer. He's is a believer. But he's sold into something that's not of God. And he's stuck somewhere. Stuck somewhere in the backwoods. Locked in. There's no pasture there. There's no nutrient there. He's still the king's son, but he's lost. He's locked in. He's locked in a... Lodabar and, and King David said to him and he brought him out of the house of Makkah the son of Emile, from Lodabar so he sent him I can imagine Mephibosheth's ideas you know he's sitting there and they said you know Zibbos told David that you're here and David's boys are coming to get you now You can't run, can he? He's lame. He can't get up and go anywhere. He's stuck. And of course, there's a rattle on the door. We're from King David's court and here we are. You know, they have to pick him up bodily because he can't walk. They pick him up and they carry him into David's and They drop him on the floor in front of David. What's going on in his mind? I think he's thinking he's about to get chopped. I think he's going to die. I think he's thinking, you know, I'm not going to survive this. This is it. This is it. I've been keeping away out of the limelight for, but now this is my. It's mine. I'm up now. This is it. I'm going to get chopped now. David's going to pull out his sword and he's going to chop my head off and he's going to throw my head on the ground. It's just going. I hope it happens quickly. I think he's terrified. I think he's petrified. A king's son. A king's son. There's no there's no stature there. There's no sense of dignity or nobleness. He's a broken vessel, laying at the feet of, of Paul, uh, 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 at the feet of uh, David. Now, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated him before David. And David said, "Mephibosheth." And he said, "Here is your servant." That's probably the wisest thing he could have said. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. <laughs> Here I am, your servant. It's Mephibosheth. And so David said to him, and I can imagine the heart of David. You know, I could see, see David. And what's he looking at? What's he looking at this thing sitting laying on the floor in front of him? what's he feeling? What's David feeling when he's looking at Mephibosheth? He's looking at Mephibosheth and he's seeing Jonathan's likeness in him. He's searching out for Jonathan. He's looking for Jonathan's likeness. He's trying to see if he can find his friend Jonathan in his, his son. He's looking at Mephibosheth. His eyes are stuck on him. He's searching him out as hard as toward him. His heart is to want him to do good to him. Mephibosheth thinks he's going to get cut. He thinks he's going to get killed. He's going to be thrown aside. And look, David's heart is searching him out because he has that light in him. He wants him. He loves him. He wants to do good to him. So David said to him, do not fear. And I reckon he said that because he was shaking in his boots. He would have been laying there on his face, shaking, shaking with fear about what was going to take place. He said, do not fear for I will surely show kindness for Jonathan your father's sake. And we will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. You know, hey, all of a sudden he's come from a place where it is without pasture. He's got no land. He's got no inheritance. And all of a sudden, David says to him, I've made a deal with your dad. I've made a deal with your dad and I've been looking for you for so long. And now here you are, I'm going to give you everything you lost everything your father your great-grandfather your grandfather had I'm going to give it all back to you all the land you have come from a place which had no pasture, now you've got pastures more than you can even think such was the kindness of David friends we're lifted out of the pit and placed together with Christ We're lifted out of a place where we were dead and brought to life in him. But many of us haven't got that into our heads. We don't live that in our lives. We don't walk in that. We don't understand that. We're still living in the pit. We're still living in Lodabar. We've been born again by the Spirit of God and we live and we sold ourselves to something that is no future. We are lame in the feet. We can't talk about our faith. We can't, we can't witness about our faith because it's not real for us. We've lost our legs. We've lost our feet. We can't, we can't walk and speak the gospel because the gospel really isn't good news to us and it's not good news to us because we don't have any pasture. We're stuck in Bar. And Paul is trying to tell us here. You've been raised with him. You've been made alive with him. You've been seated with him. And here he's reflecting exactly what happened to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth's laying there. And he says, he bowed himself down and said, what is your servant that you should look on such a dead dog as I? That's Mephibosheth. He says, I'm a dead dog. Why would you have any attitude towards me? I'm a dead dog. He do not understand. Mephibosheth was in Jonathan. When Jonathan made this pledge with David, when Jonathan made this vow with David, Mephibosheth was in the loins of Jonathan. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. When God made this pact with Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus was saying, be kind to my descendants, be kind to my brothers and sisters, be kind to them because of me. And when he gave up his life because you were in Christ, God looks at you now with not a hatred and he will to judge you and burn you and fry you. Sometimes you think you can fall down before God and you're going to die because he's looking at you and he's searching you out. He's looking for the likeness of Jesus in you. He's searching your life out looking to, what oh, looks like Jesus. He wants to be kind to you. He wants to be good to you. He wants to lift you. He wants to raise you. He wants to sit you in heavenly places. He's not looking to bash you down and to put you down and put his foot on you and say, I've got you once and for all now. That's the wrong mentality. You're sold into Lodabar. God loves you. Everybody say, God loves me. God loves me more than I can understand. You got a choice to make where you live. And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, "I give, you, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and all to his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants and." Shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest. And your master's son shall so that your that your that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, your master's son shall eat bread at my tables always. And so Ziba and his had fifteen sons and twenty servants. And so obviously these guys had more work to do now because they've got more land. They had to farm it all, and they had to do it for. Mephibosheth, he didn't get the land that he had to go and work the land. He got the land and he got all the servants with the land. They had to do the work for him. He got to sit at the master's table. You know what? We don't have to fight the warfare. You know, you fight the good fight of faith, but you are more than a conqueror, the Bible says. You are more than a conqueror. You have overcome because he overcame. You overcome in his overcoming. If you just rest in his power and his overcoming, you know, you don't have to go and do the battling. You don't have to do the hard work. You know, Jesus did the hard work for you. You just have to live in it with him and then Ziba said to the king according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant so will your servant do as for Mephibosheth said the king he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah it means in the image of God and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem for he ate continually at the king's table and he was lame in both feet. Now I want to tell you what his name means, Mephibosheth. It means exterminating the idol. Think about that. Exterminating the idol. What do we know about this man? We know that he was given a name by his father. A name that would set him up for kingly reign. A name that would cause him to focus on the holiness of God and the rightness of God. A name that would hold him in good stead. Exterminate the idols. Get rid of all the idols in the land. That was what the prophets wanted them to do. I mean, that was what God wanted them to do in the Old Testament. They kept on for, fornicating and going and, 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 and worshiping idols you know the the righteous kings would stand up and they would eliminate or exterminate all the idols so here we have a mephibosheth a heart and a name a holiness a rightness that's in this man even though he's busted and even though he's broken he still has a rightness within him because that's his heritage That's why I think it's talking about believers here, not unbelievers. Yes, we used to be unbelievers, but this message is for believers who have not stepped into where you are seated in heavenly places. A lot of you as believers don't understand that God wants you to live in heavenly places right now, that he wants you to think about heavenly things right now. You've got so caught in the place where there is no pasture. You live your whole life, no pastures around you. You just do the stuff that you're doing. You work the stuff. You live the life. You go through life. And it's what what are you doing for god i mean what are you doing in the things of god i mean there's no pasture there's no vineyard there's no vineyard there's there's nothing happening for god it's just for you're locked and you're sold into society you're in a place of no pasture and you've got lame feet because you can't get up and do anything for god yet inside your name is Mephibosheth. inside your heart wants to exterminate idolatry you have a heart for god For God and his holiness inside is there. But you're caught somehow. Caught. Caught in a trap. Then along came Jesus. Along he came. When you're caught in a trap. And you think, I can never be what God wants me to be. I could never achieve what God wants me to achieve. I could never do the things that I've thought about. I could never be the sort of person that would make God smile. My life is trapped. I love Jesus and I love God, but my life is trapped. I can't rise. I can't get up. My feet are lame. I can't get up. I can't move. I'm stuck. I'm sold into this place. I'm stuck. I can't move. And then along comes Jesus. And today he's saying to you, this is a prophetic message where he's saying to you, stop, shake yourself. He shot your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He's got you ready right now. You are going to sit at the king's table every day. Your life is not meant to be lived in some drone mentality, going to and from work in a drone way. You're meant to be living with the king every day, supping with him, dwelling with him. Your life is to exterminate all the idols in the land. Listen what? There's only one thing that stops you from doing that now. You. Because at last we've been seated with Him. At last we're seated in heavenly places. We're made alive. We've been lifted up out. And we've been seated down in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. My friends, do not let the fear of God destroy the love of God for you. When Mephibosheth is sitting there, he's looking at the king. He is fearful of the king. But David means love. I don't love. The Bible tells us in 1 John, love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Mephibosheth thinks he's going to be punished because of who he is. He doesn't understand that he's encountered God in David. The very one he's ardent for, the very one he loves has now come and personally standing before him and the eyes of David are looking at him and said, don't be afraid for perfect love casts out fear. Some of our lives are lived in some place where we have to get everything right. It it all has to be right. It's got to be right. If it's not right, you know, we, we are fearful of it not being right. And the reason why we're fearful of it not being right is because we are fearful of God who is looking for things to be right. And if things are not right, exactly right, then we are fearful of God because we know he's got a huge big stick and he's about to whack us with that stick if it's not perfectly right. And so our lives are lived in this place where we are sold into some horrible position where we are trying to be right all the time. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, not of works, it's a gift of God. You can't do anything to be right before God. You can't measure up to God's perfection to be right before God. You have to be broken To be right before God he comes and lives with those who are contrite in spirit those who are busted those who are broken like Liz was saying when she came it's time to confess your fault why do you stand here and say God forgive me I'm a sinner why because God embraces the sinner he doesn't beat the sinner he embraces the sinner he puts his arms around the sinner and he loves the sinner. Yes, the sinner's in danger of God's wrath. Yes, we know that. But God has a disposition for those who are broken. If your heart is arrogant, it's not good. But if your heart is broken, he loves you. Where are you sitting today? Where are you living? Jesus is sitting there and he says to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, where's Ruth? And Jesus says, Holy Spirit, where's Deb? But he searches around and he says, Holy Spirit, where's Olivia? What's he going to say to Jesus? Is the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, he's locked in the land of Lodabar. Sold out to something less than. You know what the Holy Spirit says? What do you want me to do? And Jesus says, go and get them. Bring them to me. I want to sit at the table with them every day. To have fellowship with them. I want him to be like a king's son to me or a king's daughter. We need to shift our view and recognize the immense grace of God toward us. Lift ourselves up out of where we are. Put our arms up and allow the Holy Spirit to take us to a table that's been prepared for us. And do that on a daily basis. As you wake in the morning, you lift your arms up. Jesus. What would you have a dead dog like me do? Jesus. I want to sit at your table. I want to sup with you, Jesus. I want to feel what it's like to be in the presence of the King. Life is busy, hey? You've got to get your study done. You've got to get to work. You've got deadlines to reach. You've got people to phone you've got so much to do but there's no there's no pasture there's no benefit in everything that you're doing when you wake up in the morning raise your arms i can't get there myself holy spirit you have to take me there i'm lame but i'm broken i'm ready now let's have breakfast together where are you where's your devotion for jesus what are you looking for? What are you looking for in life? You're the daughter of a queen, king. You're the son of a king. You should be eating at the king's table, supping with the king. What you're filling your life with, the mundane, you're filling your life with rubbish that won't satisfy? He's prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies he's come fetching me he wants me to sit together with him right now today and then tomorrow and the next day where's your devotion for your Lord I know your heart you don't want to be sucked into sin you want to exterminate the idols but you've been sold into Lodibar You're locked down somewhere. Jesus is sending out the Holy Spirit to you today and say, come on, come on in. Let's have a meal together and let it be a permanent fixture from now on. Amen? This has been a particularly difficult week for me in terms of feeling the mundaneness of life. You know, I think uh, Liz said one day, she read an article about it. Life is like work that we do. It's like pushing a rock up the top of a hill and then having it roll down again and having to go back down and push it, the rock up to the top of the hill again. That's life in Lodibar. It's like it doesn't stop. You wait for your pension and then you die. You know, there is something that can make that difference in our lives. I struggled with that all week this week. That sense of hopelessness, that sense of, crassness inside You're like, oh what is this more of the same nonsense and rot but you know why I struggled with that this week because God wanted me to feel what it's like to live in Lodabar and he said to me you know you guys some of you guys are living in Lodabar it's just a drudgery and the king has called you to his table to eat with him daily. So I don't know what you do to eat with Jesus. I don't know what you do whether you listen to music. I don't know whether you read something, whether you sit and reflect about it, whether you find some place quiet. I don't know whether you have any ideas of what it is to have a devotional time with Jesus, but I'm talking to those now who don't. Because if you don't have some time with Jesus on a permanent page, you are not eating at his table. So I figure you must be in Lodabar. Life will get pretty heavy for you there. Bow your heads, close your eyes. You know that God's spoken to you. You can feel it in your heart. you just got to spend some time with him. There's a burning inside of you that says, get on your face before the king and say, what would you do with a dead dog like me? You know it inside. Raise your hand. I don't, I'm not going to call you out to the front. I just want you to raise your hand. To indicate to Jesus that, you know, you've gotta, I, you, I want to sit at your table, Jesus. You're not raising your hand for me. I'm not even going to look around to see who's raising the hand. I don't care. In the end of the exercise, I've got my own hands raised. But you're saying to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, remind me. Holy Spirit, remind me tomorrow. Remind me this evening. Remind me every bit of time that I have spared, that I could be sitting at the table with Jesus, feasting at the table prepared for me with your raised hand you're saying Holy Spirit help me now I can't get there myself my, my feet are lame I can't get there myself help me now I need you to walk with me every day to help me to sit at the table with Jesus. Help me to turn the thing off that I watch. Turn the book over that's not good for me. Help me to think about the right things that help me to get my head in the right place. Holy Spirit, I need you to help me. I cannot do this myself. Your hands are raised saying, Holy Spirit, take my hands. Lift me up. Lift me out of the bit. I want to leave Lodibar. Holy Spirit, you see every hand that's raised here. Lord, I ask, oh God, that by your Holy Spirit, you just strengthen them this week with a power that comes from the throne of God. Quicken them, Lord Jesus, and help them to turn away from that which is rubbish and turn to that which is life itself. Lord, and may they be nourished at your table this week, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you. You may be seated.